So, uh, well, I'm completely backwards in my order here. Whoa, what's going on? I've got two sets of notes. Hmm. All right. Yeah, much better. All right, okay. All right, now I know who I am. All right, John 18. So we're coming to that crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So much unfolds in these last chapters, in these last moments. It's really quite remarkable. Verse 1 chapter 18 says when Jesus had spoken these words he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered now uh, you see there in two Judas who betrayed him knew this place because Jesus frequently uh, went into the garden uh, to pray and we see a handful of occasions where there are comments made about Jesus, the disciples knowing this location and knowing that he would go uh, into this location to pray. The brook Kidron, at this point, um, you know, he, Jesus is stepping over uh, the uh, stream there, and some speculate that it would have been running red with blood at this point because the sacrifices that were being made uh, were being cleansed off from the, the temple mount with many gallons of water. The estimations of sheep that were being sacrificed at this time uh, was in the millions. So a lot of bloodshed, a lot of cleansing of the temple occurring and Jesus you know, stepping over this brook. Whether it was at this time or not, history records that there were many times that it did run red with the blood of the sacrifices. So you know, just picturesque that Jesus is entering into this place to pray that historically carried the blood of the lambs who are sacrificed, the, the Lamb of God is stepping over the you know, the shadow of his own death uh, that is approaching. It's really quite remarkable. Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus often met there with the disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Now, the detachment of troops... Uh, the cohort is the term used in the Greek language. Uh, we know that the high priest had gone to the Roman officials and requested that they be given a detachment of troops, Roman troops. The cohort uh, that's referred to is over 600 soldiers. So 600 Roman soldiers and then the officials from the court, um, when you think about Jesus' ministry and the things that he did. 
you know, when when you look at how this particular circumstance unfolds, you can kind of think along the lines like, um, you know, maybe they were expecting trouble. I go the other direction with it in that the religious leaders have been witness to Jesus' supernatural power. And so in the flesh, they're making preparation to try and overpower that. As foolish as it is, you know, you think about this, um, you've probably had discussions with people about the Lord and your faith and their need for Christ, and they sort of lose the battle because you know the Holy Spirit's speaking through you, and then they just move into the place of the flesh. They, they just, okay, now we'll just go to anger and we'll just we'll deal with this you know on a human level. So while it's absolutely absurd, you know, the man who has been casting out demons and raising the dead and performing all of these miracles in their sight, now they're gonna, you know, what bring enough of a military mass to the circumstance that they're gonna be able to deal with Jesus. It doesn't make any sense, but you know, that's the way that sin is. It's irrational. It's not something that, you know, you look at. I read the book of Revelation and it just seems absurd. You, know, you have uh, Lucifer and uh, the uh, Antichrist and they, you know, make this plan. That, Let's go fight God. We'll, we'll, we'll mass the armies of the world together and we'll go attack God. I mean, at that point, you just it just seems so stupid. And yet... You know they try to carry it out. They're they're going to give it you know their best shot. So here they come with this detachment uh, to arrest Jesus. They have lanterns, torches, and weapons. Verse four. Therefore, Jesus, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, "Whom are you seeking?" And they answered him, "Jesus of Nazareth." Jesus said to them, I am. The he is in italics. It's added to the text. So in the original language, Jesus is just saying, I am. You know, for anyone who's studied the scripture at length, you, your mind probably flashes back to that occasion with Moses there at the burning bush and he's had all of that conversation with the Lord, who's sending him to not only Pharaoh and the Egyptian leaders, but to the Jewish people, the leaders of the Jews inside Egypt. And, and Moses says, you know, who am I going to tell these people has sent me? And the Lord says, I am. He declares himself, his name, his title, his position in those two words. You tell them that the I am, or I, you know, we often say the I am, but I am. God is all things. He is all sufficient. He is all powerful, omnipresent. You know, I, I am, fill in the blank. And that's exactly what Jesus says here in the moment. You tell them I am. You know, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also 
stood with them, and when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Literally, uh, they were knocked over backwards, is what is being said. The power of Jesus' statement knocks them to the ground. Now, uh, I always point out, you know, we have this whole teaching and experience that goes on inside Christianity, the Pentecostal movement, and I, I, and I shouldn't say it that way, the charismatic movement, because, you know, we're a Pentecostal church, and we believe and teach in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but we, we utilize them in the way that the scripture uh, tells us to. And we, we've studied First uh, Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, and those gifts should be utilized in the ways that are described there. And, uh, you know, the being slain in the spirit is, you know, as far as believers go, that's not anything we see in the scripture. That whole thing of, you know, slapping people on the forehead and they fall over backwards. That's not anything we see in the scripture other than a couple of locations, this being one of them. The power of the Holy Spirit knocks these people to the ground backwards. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, is on his way to Damascus to arrest, imprison, and kill Christians, and the Lord knocks him to the ground. The occasions we see of people being knocked down by the power of the Holy Spirit are those people who are living in rebellion to God, murderers on their way to murder believers. I don't know why we would ever want to teach Christians to emulate that. It's not, you know, it, when you look through the scripture, there's all kinds of occasions where believers go to the ground, but they do it of their own volition. They, they, they purposely fall down forward. They fall to their face. They prostrate themselves. That is the relationship of believers with God. It, submission. You know, when we raise our hands to the Lord, it's not because we're overpowered by the Spirit and can't help but raise our hands. You know, perhaps emotionally we're so stirred that, you know, we might even say, I just had to raise my hands. But it's a matter of my will is being surrendered to the Lord. I'm raising what the scripture says. I should raise my hands to the Lord. The psalmist said, you know, Paul said, I wish that men everywhere would raise holy hands to the Lord to worship him. You know, Jesus lifted his hands up to heaven, lifted his face up to heaven and prayed. These things are willful submission. When a person is in rebellion, you know, I, I, when I'm teaching on that subject a little more charismatically, I uh, will often ask people, you know, you probably especially in Maine have experienced the situation of injuring yourself far worse slipping on the ice by trying to catch yourself from falling than if you just allowed yourself to fall down. You know, you flip yourself all around trying to keep from falling down. And, you know, sometimes you don't even fall down. You like land and you've thrown things out so badly that you, you know, are days or weeks recovering from nearly falling down. That is actually in this whole thing. 
because God designed our nervous system so that you don't fall over backwards. You, you can't protect yourself. Your, your whole system is designed to land on the front. So if you start to go over backwards, you'll do everything in your power to wrench your body around the other way in order to get your hands and feet out in front of you. It's very, and that's so when you see these people in those services, you know, being touched and they're falling over backwards, the only reason they're going to do that is because they know there are deacons and catchers there. You know, have you had the unfortunate experience of being in one of those services or seeing one of those services where there was no catcher and they went to the ground? You know, people get injured very badly. Your body's not designed to land on your tailbone or your back or the back of your head. It's such a fake thing. You know, I appreciate, I totally appreciate people's desire to love the Lord and to be zealous and to, to have experiences with him. But truth, sincerity, these are necessary. They're necessary to the body of Christ. When Jesus is saying, you know, the whole time is coming when people will worship me in spirit and in truth. You know, I, I, I find it just as fake to watch people, you know, that are, you know, faking deep emotional experiences, you know, to tip their head up just right and cry. And, you know, it, you know I can't always tell when they're insincere, but when you see certain musicians, you know, doing this thousands of times in their performance, at what point, you know, is the sincerity lost? You know, the, the, the truth of, of being touched by the Lord. You know, the power that knocks these people to the ground. You know, this this power can touch us. The same power, but but therein, you know, is a lot of what we're talking about inside our faith. You know, you look at how the Lord, you know, the scripture says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then, you know, softened simultaneously Moses' heart and your heart and my heart. God doesn't affect one person any different than he does another person. Now, this is what James is saying uh, when he says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning. God doesn't treat Esau one way and Jacob another, and that causes Jacob to hate God, or Esau, thank you, to hate uh, God and Jacob to love him. God is treating them both the same way. And they are reacting to him. You know, the physical example of, you know, God hardens the clay with his son and melts the ice. You know, it's, it's the condition of the heart. It's the condition of the recipient. So here, this power of the Lord coming upon these people, it's because they're living in rebellion to him that it flattens them to the ground. This way, you resist God, right? You, you, Jesus saying, hey, fall upon the rock and be broken, or the rock is going to fall upon you and grind you to powder. You're going to be broken, 
one way or another. And what's the root of it? Humility. You can be humiliated or you can humble yourself. You have to choose. One is a submission. The other is a resistance. And, and therein is our relationship with God. These come to arrest Jesus. Judas is with them. They fall to the ground. Then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. You can probably imagine there are some within the crowd that are saying, don't say anything. You know, say, We all just got knocked down. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Speaking of you know, the apostles and the Lord wanting them to be free of the situation because it was he alone that was going to bear the punishment and make the payment for all of mankind. Now, each of them was going to suffer later in their own way, and Jesus had had particular conversations about it, but this occasion belongs to him alone. Verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. Now, I, a couple of things right there. You know, previously, we've heard Peter say, he would die at Jesus' side. And very often, you'll hear ministers talk about how, you know, that was sort of a, an arrogant claim of Peter's. I'll tell you what, if I am in a situation where I'm with Jesus and I've got a gun in my pocket and I don't. I'm just trying to draw a parallel here. And uh, there are 600 Navy SEALs present. And a whole bunch of other armed guards that have come to arrest Jesus. It's pretty over-the-top crazy to pull out your gun and start shooting people. Peter... The claim I, I, I'm saying wasn't empty. I'll die at your side. You, you yank out the sword in this company and start swinging at people, you can pretty much guarantee you're going to be a pincushion within a matter of seconds. These Roman soldiers are as serious as a heart attack. They, they are sent on missions and trained to defend an area that is their body length uh, plus their sword. So they, they plant their foot on the ground and they have been trained to fight in a pivotal movement, uh, guarding their own back with their own shield, their sword extended out in front of them and just kill everything inside that circle. And, you know, if you're not a trained fighter, you're not going to defend against the melee. There's 600 of them present. This is, this is a suicide uh, attack that Peter carries out right here. Verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup 
which my father has given me. Then the detachment of troops and the captain, the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. They led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So a couple of things there. First of all, we know that Jesus put Malchus's ear back on his head. So Jesus jumping into this situation and saying, you know, basically, you know, stop that, put your sword away. You know, you can almost imagine, not to add to it, but you can almost imagine that Jesus steps between Peter and the Roman guards that are about to collapse upon him, yanks the ear up off the ground quickly, demonstrating to everybody, we're going to put this right back on and everything's going to be okay. And demonstrating to both sides, look, I have the ability to quell this situation. It, it is amazing to me to think about Jesus even in this moment demonstrating his power in positive, meek, submissive ways. I mean, if if I just flattened the group of soldiers that was there that were going to haul me away, I wouldn't be stopping with that. You know, the in the flesh, obviously. You know, Jesus is set on reaching that crucifixion. I mean, it's just such an amazing thing to consider that Jesus in this moment wants to make sure Peter isn't harmed, wants to make sure that nothing happens with the Roman guards, wants to make sure that Malchus is okay. He's taken care of in this situation. Such humility. It's incredible that demonstration for us to look at this and you know, when the minute we recognize I've got the upper hand and I've got a little power here, we tend to lean into that and try to carry that on and, you know, continue the process of, you know, delivering ourselves from the circumstance or whatever it is. Here, Jesus knows the will of God so thoroughly, so completely that he's willing to stop that situation from escalating and becoming something terrible for Peter or Malchus and then continue on into his own you know sacrifice and work for the Lord within that whole encounter with Peter there's something quite interesting for me because when Peter made the claim I'll die at your side and now he pulls out the sword and he goes on the attack, there also comes the discussion earlier where Jesus is saying to Peter, you're going to die. And you're going to die on my behalf. It's sort of veiled when he's saying, you know, there's kind of come a time when you're old where men will come and lead you away. And, uh, and the, the Greek language doesn't translate well to the English. He's, he's telling him, uh, the veil is really quite thin. He's telling him, you're going to die. You're going to die for me. And and you can see that Peter knows what he's saying because he even points at John and says, well, what about John? And Jesus says, you know, if I want him to, he can live until I return. What business is of that of yours? Um, the thing that stands out for me is the fact that 
Peter here demonstrates that he's willing to die. He makes the bold claim and he, he demonstrates that he's willing to die. And what it comes down to is the Lord has a very particular way that he wants Peter to die. And for you and I, there's a similarity because Jesus said that he wanted us to die daily to ourselves to take up our cross. And our flesh doesn't like that. If Jesus said to us, look, I want you to give up everything you have and I want you to go a faraway country and I want you to perform some magnificent ministry and, you know, everyone will recognize the great sacrifice that you've made. We might jump right on board with that idea. As opposed to getting up and dying to myself and caring for my spouse and dying to myself and going to work and being a responsible employee and not losing my temper and following through with the Lord's plan for my life, dying the slow incremental death daily, taking up the cross is sometimes much harder than launch me into the big spiritual endeavor that, that I can see and recognize as being, you know, your will for my life. Peter's got to incrementally walk slowly towards. Church history tells us that when Peter's arrest and eventual death was approaching, that he actually, and we can't obviously verify this, but that he was actually leaving the city to avoid being arrested. And he met Jesus walking into the city. And according to church tradition, he stopped and in speaking to Jesus about what are you doing? Why are you coming in? Well, I'm fleeing. And Jesus said, well, I'm going to go die in your place. Now is your hour to die. And now you're running away from it. If that's true, it certainly fits in what's going on here. Because, you know, Peter is the guy who's willing to die on his own terms but not on Christ's terms. And honestly, that I understand very well. I'm very willing to go down in whatever way I see fit. But when it comes to being obe obedient to the way the Lord has asked me to, my flesh rebels against that. You know, it's, it's not something that I find appealing. So within this same situation as he's taken and arrested and led away, Annas, in this situation with his father-in-law Caiaphas, Annas was appointed uh, high priest by Quinarius, the Roman governor of Syria in AD 6, and remained there until he was deposed by Valerius Gratus, the, pure, the procurator of uh, Judea in AD 15. So you, know, you have that Roman appointee in place and uh, Caiaphas you know the one who is there um, as the actual high priest Annas is behind the scenes still you know pulling the strings and the the real power be behind the throne we might say so now it was 
Caiaphas, who advised the Jews in verse 14, that it was expedient for one that one man should die for the people. And that, you know, that's brought up now the second time because it was an inadvertent prophecy. You know, Caiaphas is saying it from the position of, you know, we are going to aggravate Rome to the point where they want to get rid of us. So it would be better to get rid of Jesus than to have Rome turn on us and attack us. You know, the the spiritual implication is that uh, this is a prophecy regarding Jesus dying for all of humanity. Caiaphas isn't thinking about it in spiritual terms. He's thinking about it uh, in, in fleshly ways, and yet it ends up being prophetic in its message. So here he, he's making that statement in verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now uh, we're going to point out a couple things about John and the fact that he refers to himself in the third person frequently. So Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That's John referring to himself. Now the disciple was known to the high priests and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priests. So well, we see John, as we said, referring to himself in a third person. You're probably more familiar with it on occasions like John chapter 21. Uh, we'll get to later, verse 20, where it says, Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following who also had leaned on the breast, uh, his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So we were familiar with John's you know, third-person references. You know, some of us remember Bob Dole you know, and his political career here in the U.S. He's always referring to himself in the third person. He'd be making speeches and say, now Bob Dole says and Bob Dole thinks and you know what Bob Dole would do in this situation, referring to himself. It's sort of a quirky thing some people do, referring to themselves. John is one of those people who refers to himself in the third person uh, that way. And uh, in this situation, uh, he refers to you know, this other one who was you know, familiar with the high priest and the family. You can see... Back in chapter 18, just back up to verse 10, it says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. John knows the high priest's servant's name. Okay, It's, it's not as though you know, John, in writing this later, went and hunted down Malchus and said, "Just I'm sorry, just we want to get all the facts straight. So what was your name, sir? You know, and wrote down Malchus's name, you know, to, to make sure for the accuracy of his gospel. It was a matter of he knew Malchus from his familiarity. I'll take the time to point out that when you're reading the book of Matthew, you get all kinds of insights into Rome and its inner workings and background occasions, including the fact that we hear that Pilate's wife had had a dream. Matthew is the one who tells us that. And he even knows 
of the note that she wrote to send to Pilate because Matthew was a tax collector. He was an employee of Rome. He had all of those connections, those interpersonal connections inside Roman government that kept him up to date on all of these circumstances. Here, John has insight into uh, the inner workings of Caiaphas and Annas' home and circumstance. 1816 says, But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, again John in the third person, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. And the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of his, uh, this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now, the servants and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Sideline note right there in verse 18. Jesus is going to be covered with sweat and blood, and then we're going to see him shivering and quaking because this is cold. And a horrible experience Jesus is going through. The betrayals, the beatings, on top of it, cold and wet. And this is this is the sort of thing like if anything could be excruciating if anything could be difficult. Jesus is experiencing it for us. It's cold. Peter is here warming himself. And they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. And Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. Now, there are several things about Jesus saying that. It's not just a defiance. It is a defiance, but it's not just a defiance. It's actually due to the fact that Jesus, who is the word, has given Israel the word, and part of that word is the law. And the law clearly states how these people are supposed to be conducting themselves right now. They're breaking the law. So as they are, Arresting Jesus and acting like this is something we have to do in order to be obedient to God. That's their attitude. They're breaking God's laws by the one who wrote those laws, standing right in front of them. They're not supposed to ever arrest a man at night. Okay, That could uh, cause a situation where you mistakenly arrested someone incorrectly. It could also create a situation where, uh, you know, there could be people that said that you did something improperly. 
while you were arresting the person. If you were going to arrest someone, it was supposed to be during daylight hours. Now, clearly, you know, the law gives opportunity that if someone is in the process of committing a crime, they could be taken into custody at night. But the scripture also says that anyone who arrests someone in the middle of the night should be punished themselves. So they're breaking the law. Then secondly, this point right here, which is the first point that Jesus contradicts them on, they're not supposed to ask a person to ever testify against themselves. Okay, In America, we have that mandate that says we can take the opportunity to remain silent if we choose to. Okay, Within the, the Jewish law and God's word, you could never even ask someone to testify against themselves you could, or in support of themselves. You could not ask a person to be part of the legal process of defending themselves. If you were going to accuse someone of something, you had to come with two witnesses that could verify what you were accusing that person of, and there could be no contradiction between the two witnesses who had experienced it. They had to be questioned separately, and they couldn't contradict one another. If there was any contradiction at all, <clears throat> the charges were to be dismissed. Any contradiction whatsoever. Now, there could be differences, but they had to be supportive differences. If there was contradiction, then there was to be no accusation even made. If there, You would question the witnesses first. And if there was a contradiction in the testimony, you wouldn't even go arrest the person. We need to have witnesses that would be able to come and stand before the people and make the declaration with no contradiction. Here, they bring Jesus in, begin the questioning of him. He's saying, why are you asking me? His saying, why are you asking me? It isn't just defiant. He's saying, you're breaking the law. You're here trying to conduct yourself in a legal process. You're breaking the law. You go ask the people who are witness to what I was saying. You get, you get two testimonies that stick together and then come back here and we'll have a conversation. This is Jesus holding them to account. When he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, do you answer the high priest like that? Um, again, striking someone with a clenched fist was breaking the law. Striking with the palm of the hand was held legal if they deserved it. Much greater damage here. Striking here, injurious, but not like this. Clenched fist, much more damaging. Biblical law, open hand, no, no, no violation of the law, unless the person was innocent. You can't strike an, an innocent. So my point is, the, you know, they're trying to keep to the technicality of the law. Didn't strike him with a clenched fist, struck him with an open hand. But wait a minute, he's innocent. You can't strike an innocent man. So all along the way, they're trying to keep the law while they're breaking the law. Trying to keep the law while they're breaking the law. It's just a foolish endeavor. You see their hypocrisy. You speak to the high priest like that. <laughs> really, <laughs> This man isn't even the high priest. 
This is an appointee of Rome. This isn't the high priest that is supposed to be serving his duty according to God's law. All along the way, they're in violation. Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil, but if well, why do you strike me? Oh, you struck me with an open hand. Sure, good for you. What was the thing that I did wrong that you struck me for? He's got nothing. he got nothing that he could say against Then Annas sent him down to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore, they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not, exclamation point, growing in his intensity. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him who Peter cut off, whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Now, there are a couple of things uh, about this uh, that are interesting. Uh, the parallel passages tell us that Peter cursed and denounced Jesus. It also tells us that when he cursed and denounced Jesus, they were bringing Jesus out at that moment, and Peter made eye contact with him. They, they were looking at one another face to face. I suspect every one of us has had experiences where everything just sort of fell apart in a moment like that for us, where we suddenly find ourselves exposed. Our human weakness, our sin is so prominent that in the moment we recognize I'm caught red-handed. I'm, I'm, there's really nothing I can say. You know, this passage here, when it tells us in the parallel Gospels that Peter cursed, saying, I do not know the man, I've pointed out before that that curse is not swearing in the way we might think of it. He's not using foul language. He's pronouncing a curse, which is actually more potent. You know, he's in the middle of saying something to the nature of, may God strike me dead if I know the man. He's pronouncing a curse upon himself as Jesus is brought out. I suppose it would be very disappointing if you were in a location and you heard someone that you thought loved you denying even knowing you. That would be heartbreaking enough. Someone you thought you were completely convinced this person loves me. And you you overhear them denying even knowing you. How much more potent is it if that person is pronouncing a curse upon themselves? You know, may God strike me dead if I know the man. That's that is a potent thing. How how much more potent is it if you're in the midst of doing that and then you're making eye contact with that person? 
whether we recognize it or not, we're making constant eye talk, contact with God. He sees everything we're doing. I, I think we should always view that in the positive light. We tend to view it in the negative. God is watching everything I'm doing. Chronicles, the Lord says, the eyes of the Lord go throughout the land. And we think of God as sort of the eye in the sky watching. But that passage tells us that he's seeking for those whose hearts are loyal towards him, that he might strongly support them. God isn't the spy who's constantly watching, looking for the opportunity to accuse. He's the one who's constantly looking for those who are loyal toward him, that he can grab a hold of that one and support them and strengthen them and encourage them, make them stronger. I think it's an interesting thing that our enemy does and how he baits us into circumstances. And as soon as we failed, he's right there to accuse us. You know, Revelation chapter 12, telling us that Lucifer is the accuser of the brethren. He, he is the one who looms over us. You know, we read in Genesis and they've fallen into sin and they've hidden themselves in the garden and the Lord shows up and we read that the God called you know God called out Adam where are you and sometimes our guilty mind thinks of that as sort of the arresting officer who showed up and he's yelling Adam you know where are you where are you hiding come out into the open that's not the heart of God at all the heart of God who's come to meet his son and daughter and walk with him in the cool of the garden, in the cool of the day, and they're not where they're supposed to be, and he's brokenhearted. He's calling out to them about, you know, you're supposed to be right here. Where have you gone? What's happened? You know, have you eaten of the fruit? You know, opening question the Lord has. Have you damaged yourself? Have you injured yourself? Are you in a terrible state? Peter finds himself failing here we hear the heart of jesus when we get to the end of this book and jesus is restoring peter there's no anger there's no aggression there's there's no accusation in his voice he takes peter through three opportunities to deny him right peter do you love me right feed my sheep do you love me feed my sheep do you love me tend the flock Peter could have said, uh, you know, no, no, no. I'm sure that's how he felt right now. That he has denied Jesus in such a way that he's a complete failure. 27, Peter then denied again and immediately the rooster crowed. Joe Foch points out that there was actually a mandate at this time because of noise ordinance inside the city limits that no roosters were allowed inside the city. And yet, when one is needed, the Lord cues him up and presses play. 
so that the rooster crows exactly when he's supposed to. So interesting, the work of the Lord. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, that they might eat the Passover. How completely strange, huh? Jesus is the Passover lamb. But they want to eat the shadow. The shadow. Right? That's what Colossians says. That all of these rituals and all of these, you know, different uh, feasts and festivals and new moons and Sabbaths, they are the shadow of the substance, which is Jesus Christ. You know, I uh, illustrate that when my wife goes away and I go to greet her at the airport, you know, days or weeks later. And as we approach one another, I don't fall down on the floor and embrace her shadow. I mean, I'm glad her shadow is there because it means she's there. But if I were to fall on the floor and embrace and kiss the shadow, someone would carry me away. You know, insane, off my rocker. The substance is what we are there for. So many people are obsessed with the shadow. Oh, I mean it, you know. I, I get around certain Christians and they're like, have you ever had a Savior meal? Have you ever had a Jewish person come to your church and demonstrate all these things to you? Those are the shadow. It's neat to know that stuff, but it's the shadow of the substance. The substance is what we want to concentrate on. The substance is what we're studying tonight. Jesus Christ, here. These people are, are consumed with the shadow. They're consumed with the shadow. Here, they don't want to be defiled by going into the house of the Gentiles, the praetorium guard. Oh, we're going to stay out here. You know, we're going to send Jesus in there because we're trying to murder him. But we're going to stay out here so that ceremony, we, we are defiled to the point of we're going to hell. They're going to hell because of their sin and their rejection of God. But we're going to stay out here so that we don't get religiously defiled. That's amazing. And yet there are a lot of people that are engaged in similar things. They're not letting Christ affect their heart whatsoever. You look at the outside, they've got all of the trappings. And they look at other people who don't have any of the trappings and they think, this person can't even really know God. Look at them. They're only looking at the outward. The inward is all that the Lord looks at. You know, when they come to anoint David, <clears throat> there's Samuel, and he's just convinced, oh, this one is surely the anointed of the Lord. No, okay, this one. No, okay, this one. And then they bring in ruddy little David. And the Lord says, I don't look at things as men look at things. I look on the inward heart. I look at who the person is inside. They didn't want to be defiled. Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against the man? They answered and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. Basically, just kill the guy. 
We weren't looking for any commentary from you, Pilate. We brought this man to you that he would be put to death. So just do your job. There's been a great controversy between Pilate and the religious leaders of Israel. And Pilate hangs by a thread. If there's another uprising in the Jewish province, if they go to uh, Rome and declare that Pilate is problematic or somehow creating strife, Pilate's almost certainly going to lose his job. He may lose his head in the process. So several occasions throughout this mock trial that is going on, they throw that weight behind things, that you are in a precarious position with Rome. Don't create waves with us. We'll go straight to your boss, and you'll be in very serious trouble. We, what, would we have delivered him to you if he was not deserving of death? Just do your job. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, and they get a very sharp angle on this. They deliver this in a way that is very cutting, very snarky. You know, they are just really being snide. It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die, the crucifixion. Okay, Their method of execution is not crucifixion. It's stoning. If they're going to stone, if they're going to put someone to death, the Jews would have stoned Jesus to death. So in this situation, it's not lawful for us to put him to death. They're speaking of the fact that Rome has taken their right to capital punishment away. Now there is a situation with the nation of Israel where at Jesus' birth, Roman law overwhelmed the Jewish communities and they took away capital punishment. A number of the religious leaders put on sackcloth and covered themselves in ashes and walked through the streets shouting, God is dead. Because Genesis 49 verse 10 said, the scepter the authority of rule shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver of ultimate authority from between his feet until Shiloh, that is the Messiah, comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Rome took their judicial authority away, and the Jewish people were literally left with the feeling that God's word had failed. Rather than saying, okay, wait a minute, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh, the Messiah, comes. Instead of looking around for where is the Messiah, they were saying the word of God has failed. God is dead. It's over. All of our belief system just crumbled like ash in front of us. The point is, Jesus fulfilled the prophecy and Rome took their authority away. Because Shiloh was standing here now about to be crucified, about to be sacrificed. 1833, then Pilate entered the praetorium again 
called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Now, it's interesting. Jesus puts the dig in everywhere he can. I don't know if you noticed this, but others did ask him, correct? But way back when, there were a group of wise men that showed up and said to the Roman leader, Herod, hey, where's the one who was born king of the Jews? Oh, right, right, we get it. You're the king of the Jews, appointed by Rome. We get that. Where's the one who was born king of the Jews? So Jesus saying this has a double edge to it. One, I know there's a group outside that is telling you this accusation against me, but are you asking this from the Roman historic side of the question, right? Because in this passage, we don't hear the Jews saying he makes himself out to be the king of the Jews. So Jesus puts it to him on both sides of the issue. One, I know the Jews are saying this to you, but two, you also know from Herod the Great that this Jesus was declared to be the king of the Jews about 30 years ago. So why, why are you asking me currently? Is it because you've had this check in your heart all along? Or is it because the Jews are now pressuring you on this issue? Interesting point for me anyway. So Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? He's you know, asking him, you know, no one gets delivered here unless they're guilty. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, and I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then Pilate says something that the whole world is saying right now. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Postmodernism, right there. Everything is relative, right? What is truth? This is the discussion the whole world is having. There is truth. It's, it's not objective. There is absolute truth. I've had this discussion with people, and they say, there is no truth, there is no absolute truth, there are no absolutes. And the obvious question is then, are you absolutely certain about that? Because you say that in such a way that you deliver it as though it were absolutely true. You just said there's no absolute truths. That's an absolute truth for you. You're declaring it to be absolutely true. There are absolute truths. And the word of God, in fact, is truth. It is truth. All things 
that are true are derived from the word of God. People start talking about, you know, the laws of the Bible, the things the scripture says that are right and wrong. We would have no sense of what is right and wrong without the authority of God and his word. What you would have would just be the opinions of men. And the more we drift that direction, the sicker that things become. Everywhere we go. The war, the war, as my pastor has said for a long time, is between the truth of God's word and the opinions of men. God is truth. And Jesus Christ is truth. We can rely upon his word that way. Verse 39 says, but you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they cried again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber, and the parallel gospels tell us that he was a murderer. They want a thief and a murderer released to them rather than the prince of life. It's really an amazing thing to examine human behavior in the way that when given the opportunity, we will choose death over life. Our, our, you know, a very, I don't know, simple sort of silly way of looking at this is if I eat something, and I'm suddenly just knocked you know, off my feet by how good it is. I can immediately assume that is really bad for me. If my flesh loves whatever I just ate, then I can pretty much assume I should not eat much of that at all. You know, if the, the more bland, the less enjoyable, the more my flesh is like, mm, not so much. I should probably eat that all the time. It's probably very good for me. Would probably promote health in me um, a tremendous amount. You know, I, people commonly ask us about, you know, lobster. We're, here we are in the Northeast. You enjoy lobster? Yeah. A friend once said to me, you know, lobster is really just an excuse to eat more butter. I really can't argue with that. You know, I just, I'd like to, but in the end, the, the things, the things that we enjoy. You look, you look at this and this culture, these people have experienced the miraculous loving work of Jesus Christ for three years now. Why in the world, why in the world would they reject him? Because he is the truth. Because he is life. And in our natural state, in our sinful flesh, we actually enjoy death. That which is bad for us, we enjoy. We embrace these things. You know, that, that idea that, you know, psychology in the world promotes of you know when we're born we're basically good children are basically good we'll hear that that's that is a lie that is a lie i love children i have five grandkids and they are awesome but they are tyrannical they i mean you leave children to themselves 
and it's Lord of the Flies almost immediately. They, they have wickedness bound up in their hearts. They, they will be cruel. They will be merciless. They will eat all the wrong things. They will live unhealthy lives. It is the governance of adults over them. This idea that we're basically good, it's just not true. From the beginning, watch children from the beginning lie. Nobody sat down and said, now look, when you lie, this is the process you have to go through. On their own, they develop lying. On their own. you know, I, I have given that example for many years of the little girl here who was in the nursery. And I witnessed another child there wrestling over a toy. I hear that sort of screeching and yelling. And I step in just in time to see the one little girl on the floor rip the toy away from the other. And the rage that boiled up in the, the other child's face was frightening and she without any hesitation reached down and grabbed this metal truck and raised it above her head and came was going to pile drive her poor little friend right in the head with this metal truck and I leaped over and grabbed the truck and she literally came down and like struck her friend in the shoulders who looked up like what because I had stopped the truck she wanted to kill her friend in order to get she did not have any thought for the consequences of what's going to happen here. I'm just going to stave you in the head with this metal toy. You know, when we went through the nursery and removed all the metal toys and threw them away right then. Murder in a child's heart. Rage. Lying. It, it, it is bound within our nature. It's very easy. You read something like this and you say, oh, those sick, sinful, twisted, religious Jewish leaders in that day, how terrible they were. If I look at my own heart for half a second, there I am. You give me the opportunity, what am I going to want? Oh, I'm going to want Barabbas. I'll choose, I'll choose a lying murderer over the Prince of Life in my sinful state. The sinfulness of human beings, it's unflinchingly displayed in the Scripture. The Lord shows us our own character. Uh, I think we would be wise to recognize ourselves, even in those last couple of verses, to not overlook our own character. Uh, you know, tomorrow it might not be, you know, some. What were those marshmallow things you showed me the other day? Remember those? Like they used to be the snowball. Remember snowballs? They have a like a pink coconut uh, on the outside, and and then they have that marshmallow chocolate cake with a you know frosting in the center. I haven't seen those in years, and these ones were like Halloween or like pumpkins, so, so they were like different colors. And we're not gonna buy those because we have to live with the consequences. But instantly, you know, you see them, and your flesh is like, oh, remember these, you know. That, that's a minor thing. You know, some silly little, you know, junk food. There, there are things spiritually that I will embrace quickly in my sinfulness and in my flesh that are, that are as damaging. You know, think about the consequences, you guys. Forgive me for going long here, but 
these poor people, by 70 AD, Flavius Josephus is recording that during the siege of Jerusalem, the dead were spilling out over the wall as a wave of bodies splashing on the ground below. And that was a literal, he wasn't being picturesque at all. He's literally talking about the Roman surge coming at people who were amassed at the wall by hundreds of thousands and the dead just plunging out over the other side, dying either as they hit the ground or being killed and falling off dead. Because of their rejection of Jesus Christ, death came to them in such brutal levels. And do we not do the same thing? You know, we can make cute about our sinful appetites, but boy, it's much bigger, isn't it? The things that we will pursue rather than just pursuing the king of the Jews, you know, the prince of life. May we be men and women who pursue Jesus Christ and let his life flow into our own. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we are grateful for your word and for your love. And we ask that you would minister to us. Lord, help us to surrender to you. Help us to surrender our will to you. Lord, there's a fire that burns in us like Peter that would say adamantly, we'll die at your side. There's a selfishness within us that says, we'll do it our way. We'll follow our own appetites to our own destruction, Lord. Free us from ourselves. Cause us to walk in obedience to you more and more every day. Lord, we know you freed us. We're not the people we used to be. Thank you for that. But the daily taking up the cross continues. Help us. Give us your strength. Guide us as your children, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Stay in fellowship as long as you want to.